Chapter 32 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 32, An Enterprising Englishman. While visiting Manchester in 1858, I was invited by Mr. Peacock, the lessee, to deliver a lecture in Free Trade Hall. I gave a lecture, the title of which I now forget, but I well remember it contained numerous personal reminiscences. The next day, a gentleman sent his card to my room at the hotel where I was stopping. I requested the servant to show the gentleman up at once, and he soon appeared and introduced himself. At first he seemed somewhat embarrassed, but gradually broke the ice by saying he had been pleased in listening to my lecture the previous evening, and added that he knew my history pretty well, as he had read my autobiography. As his embarrassment at first meeting with a stranger wore away, he informed me that he was joint proprietor with another gentleman in a cotton mill in Bury, near Manchester, although, he modestly added, only a few years ago I was working as a journeyman, and probably should have been at this time, had it not been for your book. Observing my surprise at this announcement, he continued, The fact is, Mr. Barnum, upon reading your autobiography, I thought I perceived you tried to make yourself out something worse than you really were, for I discovered a pleasant spirit and a good heart under the rougher exterior in which you chose to present yourself to the public. But, he added, after reading your life, I found myself in possession of renewed strength, and awakened energies and aspirations, and I said to myself, Why can't I go ahead and make money as Barnum did? He commenced without money and succeeded. Why may not I? In this train of thought, he continued, I went to a newspaper office and advertised for a partner with money to join me in establishing a cotton mill. I had no applications, and, remembering your experiences when you had money and wanted a partner, I spent half a crown in a similar experiment. I advertised for a partner to join a man who had plenty of capital. Then I had lots of applicants ready to introduce me into all sorts of occupations, from that of a banker to that of a horse jockey or gambler, if I would only furnish the money to start with. After a while, I advertised again for a partner and obtained one with money. We have a good mill. I devote myself closely to business and have been very successful. I know every line in your book. So indeed do several members of my family and I have conducted my business on the principles laid down in your published Rules for Money-Making. I find them correct principles, and, sir, I have sought this interview in order to thank you for publishing your autobiography, and to tell you that to that act of yours I attribute my present position in life. Of course, I was pleased and surprised at this revelation, and feeling that my new friend, whom I will call Mr. Wilson, had somewhat exaggerated the results of my labors as influencing his own, I said, Your statement is certainly very flattering, and I am glad if I have been able, in any manner, through my experiences, to aid you in starting in life. But I presume your genius would have found vent in good time, if I had never written a book. No, indeed it would not, he replied in an earnest tone. I am sure I should have worked as a mill hand all my life if it had not been for you. Oh, I have made no secret of it, he continued. The commercial men with whom I deal know all about it. Indeed, they call me Barnum, on change here in Manchester. By his consent, I state that his name is John Fish. 
This singular yet gratifying interview led to several others, and from that time a warm personal friendship sprung up between us. In our conversations, my enthusiastic friend would often quote entire pages from my autobiography, which I had almost forgotten, and, after he had frequently visited me by appointment where I happened to be stopping in different parts of Great Britain, he would write me letters, often quoting scraps of my conversation, and extolling what he called the wisdom of these careless remarks. I laughed at him, and told him he was about half Barnum crazy. Well, he replied, then there is method in my madness, for whenever I follow the Barnum rules, I am always successful. On one occasion, when General Tom Thumb exhibited in Bury, Mr. Wilson closed his mill and gave each of his employees a ticket to the exhibition, out of respect, as he said, to Barnum. On a subsequent occasion, when the little general visited England the last time, Mr. Wilson invited him, his wife, Commodore Nutt, Minnie Warren, and the managers of the show, to a splendid and sumptuous dinner at his house, which the distinguished little party enjoyed exceedingly, and several interesting incidents occurred on that pleasant occasion, which the miniature guests will never cease to remember with gratitude. When I was about to leave England for home, in 1859, my friend Wilson made an appointment to come to Liverpool to see me off. He came the day before I sailed, and brought his little daughter, some twelve years old, with him. We had a remarkably pleasant and social time, and I did not part with them until the tug was almost dropping off from the steamer in the River Mersey. It was a very reluctant parting. We waved our handkerchiefs until we could no longer distinguish each other, and up to the present writing we have never again met. To my numerous invitations to him and his family to visit me in America, he sends but one response, that, as yet, his business will not permit him to leave home. I hope ere long to receive a different answer. Our correspondence has been regularly kept up ever since we parted. My friend Wilson expressed himself extremely anxious to do any service for me which might at any time be in his power. Soon after I arrived in America, I read an account of a French giant then exhibiting in Paris, and said to be over eight feet in height. As this was a considerably greater altitude than any specimen of the genus Homo within my knowledge had attained, I wrote to my friend to take a trip to Paris for me, secure an interview with this modern Anak, and by actual measurement obtain for me his exact height. I enclosed an offer for this giant's services, arranging the price on a sliding scale according to what his height should actually prove to be, commencing at eight feet and descending to seven feet two inches, and if he was not taller than the latter figure, I did not want him at all. Mr. Wilson, placing an English two-foot rule in his pocket, started for Paris, and, after much difficulty and several days' delay in trying to speak with the giant, who was closely watched by his exhibitor, Mr. Wilson succeeded, by the aid of an interpreter, in exchanging a few words with him, and appointing an interview at his own, the giant's, lodgings. And now came a trouble which required all the patience and diplomacy which my agent could command. Mr. Wilson, arriving at the place of rendezvous, told the giant who he was and the object of his visit. In fact, he showed him my letter and read the tempting offers which I made for his services, provided he measured eight feet, or even came within six inches of that height. Oh, I measure over eight feet in height, said the giant. Very likely, replied my faithful agent, but you see, my orders are to measure you. There's no need of that. You can see for yourself stretching himself up a few inches by aid of that peculiar muscular knack which giants and dwarves exercise when they desire to extend or diminish their apparent stature. No doubt you are right, persisted the agent, 
but you see, that is not according to orders. Well, stand alongside of me. See, the top of your hat don't come to my shoulder, said the giant, as he swung his arm completely over Mr. Wilson's head, hat and all. But my wary agent happened just then to be watching the giant's feet and knees, and he thought he saw a movement around the understandings that materially helped the elevation of the upper works. It is all very well, said Mr. Wilson, but I tell you I have brought a two-foot rule from England, and if I am not permitted to measure your height with that, I shall not engage you. My offer had been very liberal. In fact, provided he was eight feet high, it was more than four times the amount the giant was then receiving. It was evidently a great temptation to his highness, and quite as evidently, he did not want to be fairly measured. Well, said the giant, if you can't take my word for it, look at the door. You see my head is more than two feet above the top. Giving his neck and every muscle in his body a severe stretch, just measure the height of that door. My English friend plainly saw that the giant felt that he could not come up to the mark, and he laughed at this last ruse. Oh, I don't want to measure the door. I prefer to measure you, said Mr. Wilson coolly. The giant was now desperate, and stretching himself up to the highest point, he exclaimed, Well, be quick. Put your rule down to my feet and measure me. No delay, if you please. The giant knew he could not hold himself up many seconds to the few extra inches he had imparted to his extended muscles, but his remark had drawn Mr. Wilson's attention to his feet, and from the feet to the boots, and he began to open his eyes. "'Look here, monsieur,' he exclaimed with much earnestness. "'This sort of thing won't do, you know. I don't understand this contrivance around the soles of your boots, but it seems to me that you've got a set of springs in there which materially aids your altitude a few inches when you desire it. Now, I shall stand no more nonsense. If I engage you at all, you must first take off your boots and lie flat upon your back in the middle of the floor. There you will have no purchase, and you may stretch as much as you like, and for every inch you fairly measure above seven feet two inches, you know what I am authorized to give you. The giant grumbled and talked about his word being doubted and his honor assailed, but Mr. Wilson calmly persisted, until, at length, he slowly took off his coat and gradually got down on the floor. Stretched upon his back, he made several vain efforts to extend his natural height. Mr. Wilson carefully applied his English two-foot rule, the result of the measurement causing him much astonishment and the giant more indignation, the giant measuring exactly seven feet one and one-half inches. So he was not engaged, and my agent returned to England and wrote me a most amusing letter, giving the particulars of the gigantic interview. On the occasion of the erection of a new engine in his mill, Mr. Wilson proposed naming it after his daughter, but she insisted it should be christened Barnum, and it was so done, with considerable ceremony. Subsequently, he introduced a second engine into his enlarged mill, and named this after my wife, Charity. A short time since, I wrote informing him that I desired to give some of the foregoing facts in my book and asked him to give me his consent, and also to furnish me some particulars in regard to the engines, and the capacity of his mill. He wrote in return a modest letter, which is so characteristic of my whole-souled friend that I cannot forbear making the following extracts from it. Had I made a fortune of one hundred thousand pounds, I should have been proud of such a place in your book as Albert Smith has in your autobiography. But, as I have only been able to make... Here he named a sum, which in this country would be considered almost a fortune, 
I feel I should be out of place in your pages, at all events. If you mention me at all, draw it mildly, if you please. The American war has made sad havoc in our trade, and it is only by close attention to business that I have lately been at all successful. I have built a place for 1,000 looms, and have, as you know, put in a pair of engines, which I have named Barnum and Charity. Each engine has its name engraved on two large brass plates at either end of the cylinder, which has often caused much mirth when I have explained the circumstances to visitors. I started and christened Charity on the 14th of January last, and she has saved me twelve pounds per month in coals ever since. The steam from the boiler goes first to Charity, she is high pressure, and Barnum only gets the steam after she has done with it. He has to work at low pressure, a condensing engine, and the result is a saving. Barnum was extravagant when he took steam direct, but since I fixed Charity betwixt him and the boiler, he can only get what she gives him. This reminds me that you state in your life you could always make money, but formerly did not save it. Perhaps you never took care of it till Charity became Chancellor of Exchequer. When I visited you at the Bull Hotel in Blackburn, you pointed to General Tom Thumb and said, That is my piece of goods. I have sold it hundreds of thousands of times and have never yet delivered it. That was ten years ago, in 1858. If I had been doing the same with my pieces of calico, I must have been wealthy by this time, but I have been hammering at one cotton nail several months, and, as it did not offer to clinch, I was almost tempted to doubt one of your rules, and thought I would drive at some other nail, but, on reflection, I knew I understood cotton better than anything else, and so I back up your rule and stick to cotton, not doubting it will be all right and successful." Mr. Wilson was one of the large class of English manufacturers who suffered seriously from the effects of the rebellion in the United States. As an Englishman, he could not have a patriot's interest in the progress of that terrible struggle, but he made a practical exhibition of sympathy for the suffering soldiers, in a pleasant and characteristic manner. The great fair of the Sanitary Commission held in New York during the war affords one of the most interesting chapters in American history. It meant cordial for the sick and suffering in the hospitals, and balm and relief for the wounded in the field. None of those who visited the fair will forget, in the multiplicity of offerings, to put money into the treasury of the commission, two monster cakes, which were as strange in shape and ornament as they were fairly mammoth in their proportions. One of these great cakes was covered with miniature forts, ships of war, cannon, armies, arms of the whole panoply of war, and it excited the attention of all visitors. This strange cake was what is called in Bury, England, where name, cake, and custom originated a simnel cake, and an interesting history pertains to it. There is an anniversary in Bury, and I believe only in that place in England, called Simnel Sunday. Like many old observances, its origin is lost in antiquity, but on the fourth Sunday in Lent, which is Simnel Sunday, everybody in Bury eats Simnel cake. It is a high day for the inhabitants, and the streets are thronged with people. During the preceding week, the shop windows of the confectioners exhibit a plethora of large, flat cakes of a peculiar pattern and obtuthsome composition. Every confectioner aims to outdo his rivals in the bigness of the one show cake which nearly fills his window, and in the molding and ornamental accessories. A local description, giving the requisite characteristics, says, 
The great simnel must be rich, must be big, and must be novel in ornamentation. Such is the simnel cake, the specialty of simnel Sunday in the town of Bury in Old England. And such was the monster cake, with its warlike emblems, which attracted so much attention at the fair, and added considerably to the receipts for the sanitary commission. It was sent to me expressly for this fair, by my friend Wilson, and, while it was in itself a generous gift, it was doubly so as coming from an English manufacturer, who had suffered by the war. The second great simnel cake, which stood beside it in the fair, was sent to me personally by Mr. Wilson, but, with his permission, I took much pleasure in contributing it, with his own offering, for the benefit of our suffering soldiers. It may thus be seen that my friend Wilson is not only an enterprising Englishman, but that he is also a generous, noble-hearted man, one who, in a great struggle like the late civil war in America, could sincerely sympathize with suffering humanity, notwithstanding, as he expressed it, the American war has made sad havoc in our trade. His soul soars above pounds, shillings, and pence, and I take great pleasure in expressing admiration for a gentleman of such marked enterprise, philanthropy, and integrity. End of chapter 32